Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello and welcome to the show. Super excited to be here today because we have a new Bible skeptic joining us. Katie is here and we are hoping she will become a more regular part of the show going forward. Hello, Katie. Hi, everyone. It's great to be here. Um, I'm Katie. A little background. Um, John and I went to the same church together, maybe about a decade, maybe a little more than a decade ago. Um, and so we have experienced some of the same things that we're going to be talking about today. That's right. And um, I wanted to start today by looking at a news article I saw. There's new polling data available from thestateoftheology.com. Now, this is a regular poll conducted by a Christian organization, Ligonier Ministries uh, and Lifeway Research. The poll asks American Christians what they believe about various theological questions in order to get a better idea of what evangelical Christians in America actually believe. Um, So let me just go through some of the basic findings. I think some of this is very interesting. So they asked the question to the respondents, God learns and adapts to different circumstances, agree or disagree. So when they're surveying Americans in general, not just evangelicals, 51% agree that God learns and adapts to different circumstances. I find that interesting because it doesn't specify whether these uh, adults are religious at all. But when they ask evangelicals, 48% of evangelicals agree that God learns and adapts to different circumstances. Now, what's interesting to me about that, last time Ben and I discussed um, the omniscience of God and does God know everything. Now, it's a a basic tenet of the church, of uh, the large majority of Christian churches in the world, that God is omniscient and he doesn't, he can't learn Uh, because he already knows everything. But 48% of evangelicals agree with this. It has the majority or a huge percentage of Christians in this country believing something that historically has been considered heresy. Let me go over another few examples from this poll, and then we can discuss. So the next question is, are we born innocent? Um, So in the Christian church, the, the historical and orthodox viewpoint is that nobody is innocent. Uh, it's called original sin. We are all born into sin, and therefore we need a savior. That's the entire premise of the Christian church, actually. 
So 71% of Americans in general agree that we are all born innocent. And even among evangelicals, 65% agree that we are all born innocent. I just think that's fascinating. It shows a complete lack of understanding of what the church has historically taught. We, we can get into, is this a, a misunderstanding of the orthodoxy or is it a kind of like liberalization happening in the church? My personal view is that the focus in American churches has become much more politicized and the focus has been much more on cultural issues because later on in the poll, it talks about um, abortion and you know transgender issues, and the large majority of evangelicals take the conservative viewpoint on that. So I think these kind of baseline uh, doctrines of the church are just not really discussed much, um, and not in, to the point where they don't even know what the church actually teaches on these things. Here's another question. So, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Um, U.S. evangelical finding, 48% agreed in 2016, but now 56% agree that God accepts the worship of all religions. Again, like we're seeing this change over time. Now, this, this one here is, the, to me, the most fascinating one. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. In 2020, 30% agreed. 30% of evangelical Christians agreed with that. And in 2022, 43% of evangelicals agree that Jesus is not God. Now, you really can't get a more fundamental teaching of the Orthodox Christian Church historically than the idea that Jesus is God. He's part of the Trinity. Um, and saying anything other than that in the majority of Christian churches worldwide is an absolute heresy. Yet in America... 43% of evangelicals say, yeah, he was a good teacher, but he was not God. Um, I think that's absolutely amazing. And then we get to evangelicals on uh, sex outside of marriage is a sin. Well, in 2016, 91% agreed that it was a sin. But in 2022, 94% agree that sex outside of traditional <laughs> marriage is a sin. And then gender identity as a matter of choice. The evangelical finding is in 2022 that 37% agree that gender identity is a matter of choice. So there, you can see this on these cultural issues of gender, um, a kind of a radicalization that um, they have been so flexible on the core beliefs of Christianity at its core, but when it comes to these cultural issues, um, they are as radical and conservative as ever. Uh, and then we get to abortion. Abortion is a sin. In 2016, 87% agreed that abortion is a sin. But in 2022, 91% agree that abortion is a sin among evangelicals. Um, so I, I kind of wanted to ask you guys what your thoughts were about this. To me, this was just some fascinating data. Yeah, I think for me, this, this sort of contrast or this inverse relationship where the percentage of evangelicals who think that the Bible isn't true and Jesus wasn't God is growing 
right? So more people are starting, more evangelicals are starting to say, well, maybe the Bible isn't true. Maybe Jesus wasn't God. Like that's growing. But at the same time, there's this incredibly strong conviction that sex outside of marriage is a sin and abortion is a sin. And so for me, the contradiction between these two sort of reveals like the cultural and societal control impetus that's like inherent in Christianity and patriarchy. And it kind of makes me think of, you know, the the growing trend of sort of like distinguishing between like Christianity and white Christian nationalists um, because this really especially after everything that happened with Roe versus Wade earlier this year like it just it's really starting to feel like the church is really picking which issues it wants to drive home um, messages about to people and I think the other like the other thing that the church has really focused on driving home to people as seen in these survey results um, is the importance of church membership. Um, Because that item had the largest difference in strongly agree between the general U.S. population and evangelicals. And, you know, again, there's like a structural and economic incentive to make sure that more Christians are getting this idea. Because the more church members you have, you know, the larger budget you're going to have, the church is going to be able to sustain itself. Right. Yeah. I mean, interestingly, the polling data also suggests, if you look at polls elsewhere, that church membership is decreasing over time. Um, and to, what I think is an interesting question about all this data is, you know, are is the church liberalizing on these other core doctrinal issues? I don't think so. I think I would guess that this has more to do with churches not even focusing on core Christian uh, doctrines anymore. I think there's been such a politicization of the church that uh, I think it really stems to the fact that people just aren't even knowledgeable about like core church doctrines or even what the Bible teaches. So on the one hand, it's like issues that are not abundantly clear in Scripture are are becoming the issues that the church is uh, most hardline about, and these really culture war centric issues are really like where all the energy in the evangelical church is going. And so I think you're right, John. I think it's just a matter of Jesus's deity is not something that these people are focused on. They're focused on like saving the unborn or um, stopping their kids from learning CRT or stopping trans rights in school. Um or fighting back against feminism in the culture. So I think in some of the data, you can see that the culture on a whole, I think is just getting more liberalized. Um, But then the evangelical uh, faction of the culture, in some ways, is becoming more entrenched and uh, more radicalized around these culture war issues. Um, And then the other thing I just wanted to bring up was... I think the other thing that shows the ignorance is the affirmation of heresy, um, what would be considered, you know, I mean, again, on this show, we're sort of undercutting the idea of orthodoxy by looking at the ancient texts and sort of uh, uh, looking at early Christianity before orthodoxy was fully established. But throughout the history of the church, affirming the deity of Jesus was certainly something um, since like the Nicene Creed that was the, the most fundamental thing 
<laughs> for the Christian church. I mean, these are people that are like, I don't know how you identify as an evangelical and are unsure whether you believe in the divinity of Christ. I mean, those two things are basically definitionally the same thing. Um, and if you don't believe it, like by definition, I don't think you are an evangelical. But we see the same thing happens with the um, relational aspect of the Holy Spirit and the Arian heresy that Christians use now in order to um, justify the uh, submissive relationship of wife to husband. And we may get a chance to talk a little bit about that later or on a future episode. Um, but I think it's like the culture is being put in front of um, traditional church orthodoxy, and the church is so clueless that they don't realize. Yeah, and I think, you know, the point of this show is we are the Skeptics Bible Project, so we're trying to look at this from a biblical point of view, and what we're seeing here is in the evangelical church, there doesn't seem to be as much of a emphasis on actually understanding what the Bible really says. It's more a matter of just holding it up as some kind of banner um, that that only has meaning as a symbol, where most people in the evangelical church, and I, I know I'm speaking broadly, but um, really aren't that familiar with these doctrines, and I think this polling data um, goes to that point. But um, why don't we move on to the main topic today? We're going to talk about the role of women in the church. Um, it has been hotly debated, uh, especially in the modern era. There are certainly many more progressive churches who treat women and men with equality. However, the majority of church-going Christians currently attend a church where women are denied leadership roles. And today we're going to go through the various viewpoints that the writers of the Bible had and then break down the current state of the Christian churches and the role or lack thereof of women within. There's plenty of passages we can take a look at in the Old Testament where there are both what I would call pro-women and anti-women verses from God creating man and women both in his own image to verses that set up laws which make women worth less than men, or even worse, where God's people are commanded to take women against their will, or other passages where they are treated almost on a subhuman level. So there is a spectrum of beliefs about women that we see in the Old Testament, but today we are going to concentrate on the New Testament passages, which will lead us into a discussion about the church, both ancient and modern. So let's take a look at the Gospels and take a look at some of the more positive portrayals of women. And Katie, I think you've been looking at this a little bit. Yeah, so I'm going to go over um, some some scenes from the, the four Gospels. Um, and I think these are interesting because, um, I don't know, I really believe that actions do speak louder than words. Um, so, for example, Jesus praises women for their words and actions. Um, at one point, he praises um, a woman who's like a sex worker. Um, she comes to him during his meal while, with the Pharisees, and she washes his feet with her tears and dries them with her hair. This happens in Luke 7.38. And the Pharisees obviously are like having a fit. And Jesus assures her of God's forgiveness because she loved much. And he actually, like, uses what she's doing to throw shade on the Pharisees, which was something he did a lot. Um, he also praises a widow who gives her last two copper coins to the temple. Um, she says to his apostle, uh, Jesus says to his apostles, she's given more than all those who were throwing in the shekels they could easily afford. This happens in Mark, Mark 12, 41. Um, and then... Um, 
he also has women as his disciples. Um, so there was a group of women who looked after Jesus and were really considered his disciples, even though at that time, because of women's social status, they couldn't be called such. But if you think of like Martha and Mary, Lazarus's sisters, Jesus was often hanging out at their home and relaxing. They were taking care of him. We see this in John 12 too. Um, there were also women that he healed and freed from evil spirits who, you know, uh, started following him. And Luke names several of these women. So there's Joanna, um, who's Ch Chow's wife, and Her uh, who was Herod's steward. There's Susanna. And then there's, um, quote, many others who helped Jesus and the Twelve out of their sustenance. This is Luke 8, 3. Um, Luke describes a group of women who mourned and lamented Jesus on his way to the cross, Luke 23, 27. Um, and of course, you know, we have Jesus's mother, Mary, um, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the wife of Clopas standing at the cross while he's being crucified in John 19, 25. And then, um, you know, we really can't talk about women in the gospels without bringing up Mary Magdalene. So Mary Magdalene, um, so this is after Jesus has been crucified and he's been put in the tomb. The disciples are all hiding out in the upper room because they're afraid that the crowd that crucified Jesus is coming for them next. Um, so Jesus ultimately later has to go to them for them to see him. But Mary is the person who discovers that he's risen because she goes to the tomb the morning after to anoint him. Um, and she is the first person that sees Jesus um, after he is resurrected. Um, so yeah, those really powerful examples of how Jesus is interacting with women in these gospels is really interesting. So Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So this is uh, obviously Paul. Um, it's actually, um, scholars think it was a quote of a baptismal song. Um, that was floating around amongst the uh, Christian community at that time. But this verse is like probably one of the most quoted and talked about of all of many controversial passages of Paul. And it's, uh, it's undermining of uh, basically all social hierarchies. Um, Paul is uh, saying uh, essentially that everything is erased under Christ and... Uh, that in some ways, some people have even interpreted it as a, um, an answer to Rome's sort of uh, forced, I think they called it forced monotheism, um, where Rome was ultimately the, uh, Caesar was ultimately the one who was the mediator of uh, religious faith, even though the Jews had religious faith or uh, religious freedom. But Paul is basically saying like there's no mediator and that we're all freed from oppression and uh, can maintain our distinctiveness, but also are united. Um, so that's the first text. And then I think the second one is even more shocking in some way. So the whole uh, discussion is about leaders in the church uh, who are women. But in Romans 16, Paul lists off uh, a whole slew of women that are literally leaders in the church. So I'm just going to go through the list. So Phoebe, the deacon who carried the letter from Paul and read it aloud to her house church. And Phoebe is like, uh, is very famous actually. 
Uh, Presca, or Priscilla, whose name is mentioned before her husband's name, something rather notable in the Roman world, as a co-worker with Paul. Mary, a hard worker for the gospel in Asia. Juna, prominent among the apostles. Tryphena and Tryphosa, Paul's fellow workers in the Lord. The beloved Persis, who also worked hard for the Lord. Rufus's mother, Julia, and Nearest's sister. Um, so about Phoebe, um, she's actually the only deacon of a first century church whose name we know. And more women are identified in the ministry in Romans 16 than there are men. Why have uh, we not noticed this before, this like shocking slew of women that Paul affirms? Well, English Bible translations have actually obscured some of these women. Take, for example, the Rye Study Bible, published by Moody Press in 1986. Well, instead of recognizing Phoebe as a deacon, it actually translates her role as servant. And in their, their study note, they said the word here translated servant is often translated deacon, which leads some to believe that Phoebe was a deaconess. However, the word is more likely used here in an unofficial sense of helper. That's the only explanation they give for why they would translate the word that way. Clearly, if it was a man's name, they wouldn't be making that same uh, footnote. But because women can't be leaders, women can't be deacons, uh, Phoebe can't be a deacon, even though that's what it says. So it's interesting. These people that claim inerrancy and every word needs to be followed literally don't follow the word literally. Junia is another interesting example. So Junia was accepted as an apostle until nearly modern times, when all of a sudden her name began to be translated as a man's name, Junius. There was a New Testament scholar, Eldon Joy Epps, who did a chart uh, for the Greek name Junia, and it was uh, universally translated in its female form until the 20th century. Epp makes it painfully, maddeningly clear that a major factor in the 20th century treatment of Romans 16.7 was the assumption that a woman could not be an apostle. So it's difficult to interpret Paul um, as being against women being in the ministry or women teaching or preaching when he lists off women that seemingly are preaching, teaching, and also in leadership roles. Yeah, Ben, we're going to um, get into this a little bit in the next episode about what many scholars believe was a progression from a very pro-woman uh, Paul to a very anti-woman Paul, and this was done through editors and redactors that um, kind of corrupted Paul's initial message. But for now, I think that's fascinating. I mean, I grew up in a church, and Katie as well, where Women couldn't be not just pastors or elders, they couldn't even be deacons. And here you have, um, pretty clearly, Phoebe was a woman deacon, like in the time of the Apostle Paul. Um, I mean, they think she's literally the one that delivered the letter to Rome. Right. To the Roman yeah, church. It's, it, <laughs> and now she's essentially like written out of churches. Yeah, and if you want like precedent to uh, defend... Uh, women leadership in church, like there it is, like black and white. Um, and what I think is even more fascinating to me is Junia, like you said, who was an apostle. 
And um, I've, like you said, they've mistranslated her name as Junius, or some people have said, well, Junia was a male name, which it certainly was not um, by any like linguistic study of the original Greek. And um, so you have a woman apostle mentioned in uh, Romans. Prominent among the apostles. Right. So not only an apostle, but also prominent among the apostles. Right. Now, um, some people will hone in on that phrase, among the apostles, to say she was kind of an associate of the apostles. Um, but that's ridiculous. And if you hear um, Bart Ehrman goes into a lot of detail of this in his book, Misquoting Jesus, and also um, Bruce Metzger, you know, conservative uh, Christian Scott, New Testament scholar completely agrees with Ehrman on that. Um, again, you'd have to do a lot of gymnastics to get out of this very pro-woman uh, view that the Apostle Paul had um, in his early epistles. Should we mention Acts 9 just real quickly? Sure. It's about Tabitha, and she's identified as a disciple in Acts 9. But not only a disciple, but a certain female disciple, which indicates she may be one of many female disciples. Yeah, that's another one that, um, again, the church doesn't really, I, I never hear anyone in church talking about that uh, growing up, and um, maybe they should. But um, because the verses they do talk about are verses like this 1 Corinthians 11, and I'll read uh, verse 3 here. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Okay, so right away, <laughs> you have another problem kind of separate to what we're discussing, where it definitely cuts against the idea of the Trinity, because it seems that uh, in the same way that it's depicting woman as being subordinate to man, it's also um, depicting Christ as being subordinate to God. And this is not... This is not talking about, you know, uh, the Christ in his human form on earth here, because this is after Paul is writing, um, after what Christians claim the resurrection happened. So they're talking about Christ in his kind of eternal form, being subordinate to God. Um, the Arian heresy. Right. But I'll go on, verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have had her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man." For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Um, I, I really want to hear Katie's thoughts on this uh, as I'm going through these, because I don't want it just to be me complaining um, about these things. But when I when I read this stuff, um, you can see how it's led to like so much oppression of women and subjugation of women throughout history. And this is one of those times where I think it's appropriate to look at verses in the Bible and say, no, this is not good. Yeah. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I kind of have a lot of feelings around this because I grew up like, you know, high school and college when I was trying to like study the Bible and like be a quote unquote good Christian um, while at the same time being, you know, a critical thinker in every other area of my life. 
um, yeah, I read these verses, you know, when I was trying to like read through the whole New Testament again. Um, and yeah, and these were things that we heard in church. Within the church that that we went to, this was still embodied. Um, you know, like we, you talked earlier about how women couldn't be deacons. It really felt like the default roles for women in our church was you could teach Sunday school or you could organize baby showers or you could organize coffee hour. Right. And so all of those things were, you know, women doing things for men. And I also remember like after church, it would be all the women would be either running coffee hour or like taking care of their children downstairs in the basement and all the men would be upstairs in the foyer um, talking to each other about serious theological things. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, this is very, very evident. Um, At another point in college, I was hanging out with some Reformed Baptist you know, kids. And we had gone out to a diner and the pastor turned, the pastor was hanging out with us that night. I guess I don't remember why, but he turned to me and he was like, you're going to be a great wife. Like you're so good at helping people. And (laughs) I didn't say anything, but like inwardly, I like wanted to throw up because already by this point, like, you know, the expectation was like, well, you to be a good Christian, you have to marry like a Christian man. And then like the unspoken part was, and you have to help him live his life and have his children. And like what you want and what you're interested in isn't important. Um, And so by this point, I had already decided, like, I'm not interested in getting married because this looks like drudgery to me. Um, So, yeah, when I read verses like this, it just kind of makes me think of those social dynamics that unfortunately are still really present um, across, I feel like, pretty broad swaths of Christianity. Yeah, and I think that... um... You know, we did a whole series on inerrancy and um, church splits. And, um, you know, this is Christians using these verses, trying to say the Bible's perfect. It can't err. So when it says this stuff, it must be true. Um, And I think what we are advocating for on this show is to whatever you believe, whatever you come down to on like the basic gospel message of of the Bible, um, I, I think having a more flexible view of the Bible and understanding that this stuff, it did not drop out of heaven from an all-powerful God. This was clearly written by men who wanted to exercise control in the church, and um, and that's exactly what it's used for. And having a, I think, a more progressive understanding of these verses would um, suit the church well. Everyone cherry picks every uh, church I've ever been in. Um, You have Christians cherry picking the verses that suit their narrative. And um, we've just been through some positive views on women. And uh, why not cherry pick those? And instead, it usually comes down to um, picking out these that keep women subjugated. Uh, The Bible is not speaking one uh, doctrine on any of these issues. And um, it's important to take that into account when you're reading the Bible. I just have a couple other verses really quick I want to get to. So we talked about women having authority over man. And verse 10 of the same passage in that we're going through now in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, it is for this reason that women ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. 
Now, this is like a long thing that we could get into, but I'll just say quickly, this most scholars think this comes from Genesis, where the sons of God looked down from heaven and lusted after the human women. And they actually came down and raped them, and they had offspring, and these offspring were a super race of giants called the Nephilim. So somehow this verse means that women don't have any authority over her own body. It's really strange, and I don't quite understand it, but I thought it was noteworthy in this discussion. Um, so uh, never the, verse 11, nevertheless in the Lord women is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everyone comes from God. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? So that I, it's, if Paul is asking me to judge for myself, I judge that it's fine. I just feel like Paul is asking a rhetorical question there. Um, right. I think he's saying that, of course, it's so obvious that women dishonor their head by praying with their head uncovered. Yeah, if it's phrased as a question, I'll take the question and I'll judge that it's fine. Um, <laughs> and just to briefly return to verse 10, um, yeah. it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her head because of the angels. So to me, this almost seems like they're saying we're going to give women the choice to do what they want with their head. But it, it just feels like it's playing back into rape culture because it's like, oh, those women were raped because their heads were uncovered. Mm. And so we're going to give women the choice of what to do. Like, we'll give them authority over this one thing. But then it's almost like that way we can, like, we, we, we can, like, scarlet letter. We can brand women, you know, like, oh, well, they had the choice and they're choosing not to cover their heads. And so whatever happens to them, it's their fault. They made the choice. I don't know. It's a very confusing verse, but that's just kind of what comes up for me when I read this. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think that that is what it's saying. Well, the Nephilim story—that's probably the the like the lesson of that story—is that like you know don't make yourself too attractive because the angels will come down and like you know rape you or like the the victim of rape is really the one that's responsible because they tempted the angels or whatever. Um, yeah, it's uh the passage is so obscure and unclear. Um, and then he starts talking about angels, and it just goes to a whole other level. Yeah, it reminds me of um, another passage in the Old Testament about how King David was uh, watching Bathsheba bathe on the rooftop, and he was lusting after her. And um, eventually he um, took her as his wife. Um, and everything David did in that story is horrible. And uh, But yet, the way it was described to me in church by my pastor was, well, she shouldn't have been bathing on the roof like that. <laughs> and, of course, the Bible never says anything about that um, at all. It doesn't, it doesn't actually say Bathsheba did anything wrong. It, it completely blames David. Yet the way it was presented to me it was like, well, the, women, the woman played a real big role in this. I uh, mean, just to add on to that aside, it's like King David is... You know, just how we have, like, problematic celebrities today 
who it's like, oh, like Woody Allen, like is a pedophile and a child abuser, but we still love, you know, there's a contingent of people who still love his movies. So they're going to like brush that under the rug. Um, in some ways, King David gets the same treatment where like the church does not know whether to glorify this man or to like vilify him and it just kind of goes back to like the the binary thinking that exists in so much of the contemporary church where it's like things are either good or bad and they don't know how to hold both things in their hand um, or in their consciousness and so that's where you sort of get this like shaming of Bathsheba for doing something you know that wasn't inherently wrong at all just so that we can put our attention on that and blame her for that instead of blaming David for like these legitimately egregious acts also, like, all of this thought has been formulated by men. <laughs> like, these stories were written by men. The interpretations for centuries have been by men. So the first step, I think, is, and, and I think this is happening now, is women are reading these texts, too, and drawing out things that are maybe latent in the text, like reading beneath the patriarchy and the sexism that's there. So Bathsheba, in the text, she's not giving agency at all for anything because her perspective is not something that the author cares about. But if you read beneath the lines in the text, it's, well, David took her. And, you know, David sent soldiers to get her. So, like, what can we infer? Well, if you're just a woman and soldiers from the king come and get you, like, I don't think it really matters what your your choice is. Or do you have the capacity to make a free choice in that moment? We shouldn't take the biblical authors. Again, this goes back to, like, the inerrancy question. So, again, it's like, it's a human author that's writing this story. We should understand that author is going to have biases because it was written in 600 BCE. Um, but I think that also there's a way to look at these texts where Bathsheba is not the villain or not even doesn't do anything wrong, but David actually is the villain. And I think maybe that's the new way that we should be looking at these texts. Yeah. And we, we talked about David and Bathsheba. There's a lot of instances all over the old Testament where women are viewed as property. Um, not much different than the cattle, there's a passage, um, I don't know the reference off the top of my head, but where God is commanding the Israelites to destroy another foreign nation. But he says, like, basically kill everyone except for the um, young virgins. Take those for yourselves. So it, to me, it's, it's so inhumane. It, it does not view women even as full human beings. Um, but... We don't, you know, we could go on this subject all day because there's the Bible is a, a big book and um, there's many things we could talk about. I just want to finish up. Paul seems to, uh, in First Corinthians here, talk a lot about uh, how nature teaches us things. Um, does not nature teach us that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? I mean, I don't think nature necessarily teaches that, but I guess that was a popular idea in his day. Um, and and a woman has long hair, it is her glory, so I guess um, she's less glorious with short hair. Um, and the, it goes on to talk about how her hair was giving to her as a covering. And, uh, and then it says, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. That's, that's just, I don't... 
Honestly, what this reminds me of, okay, so I'm not a biblical scholar, but what I have read, you know, from Karen Armstrong, John Dominic Crisson, like the, the church, you know, shortly after Jesus, you know, was crucified, the early Christian church, there were so many different facets of it in the same way that like when I think of the American left today, there's so many different facets that are pre-exist, like all existing at the same time and fighting with each other, you know, over like what should our strategy be? How should we be moving forward? And so all of these different like groups within the early church were fighting for hegemony. And so it just like when I read that verse, it's like this is someone from a very specific group within the early church who doesn't think there should be any other practice and so is just like blatantly denying that other practices exist and this is what made it into like what we now consider the canonical texts of the bible and we know paul is like a spiteful guy if you go against him because galatians like that whole letter is basically like he founded the church then other teachers came they started teaching them stuff that was not Paul's gospel and Paul was like you guys better start following my teaching again or there's going to be big problems so Paul is very like there are conflicts with other leaders in Christianity that are in the Bible um there are others that we can kind of assume Paul is like an island unto his own in a lot of ways he's like his revelation came from the resurrected Lord that came and, and visited him. And he doesn't ever quote what Jesus said. He's like out there talking about uh, what he learned from the resurrected Lord in a totally different way than the, the 12 uh, followers of, of Jesus or the original disciples of, of Jesus. So I think that uh, it's not that surprising that Paul would have this sort of uh, visceral reaction to people wanting to debate any point that he's making. I do think it's like funny, though. He's also like oscillating between like, here's what you need to do. It's a dishonor. But if you feel that you should like uncover, then, you know, whatever you think is best... Yeah, I, but then he I, kind of comes back and oscillates again, and then he comes back, and so it's like he's he's not really. I was, you know, I said to this to John before. I feel like this whole passage is Paul really not. He's like trying to convince them, but he knows his arguments are not very good, um, and he doesn't seem to be making a very convincing case, and he's got a bunch of desperate reasons that like don't all coen like they don't all really like coincide with each other or like our co a cohesive whole he's sort of all over the place yeah i think um in general paul is confusing and this is part of the reason like we were talked about in our previous series why uh the churches are divided because it's so hard to devise like one singular teaching from any of these passages if that's what your project is and um you know when we talk about the law it's like it's like the law is good, but the law is bad, but it's no longer we no longer should use it. Like it's all over the place, round and round in circles, and it's like impossible to actually figure out what he's trying to say, um, which is why churches have been like debating all of these issues for centuries. And the other thing to remember is that these are not systematic theology textbooks that Paul's writing. He's writing specific letters to specific issues at these various churches. So it's like. He's addressing like something specifically in Corinth um, that may not be really an issue like anywhere but in Corinth. Right. That's a, yeah. You always have to keep that in mind. 
So we have some more verses that um, we can get to. Um, Katie, do you want to uh, continue on? Yeah. So here's some more things that Paul has to say. Um, so 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35, he says, women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. Unclear what law he was referring to. Verse 35, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Um, then in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, Paul says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Um, so he's setting up this like really extreme subjugation, but then in verse 25, he says, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But he doesn't really like elaborate, um, anymore on what that should mean for husbands. The emphasis is on what submission looks like for the wives, um, and then First um, Timothy 2, 11 to 15, he says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. So again, no space for any critical thinking from women. Um, I would be curious to hear what Phoebe thought about this um, and all of the other women who were leaders in the church at this time. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Um, 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Verse 14, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So we see some of that pettiness there again. Um, and uh, verse 15, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Um, so just as, as contemporary context, in 2020, the U.S. had the highest maternal mortal, mortality rate of any nation in the world. Um, so on average, 23.8 women are dying um, per 100,000 women who give birth. Um, and that maternal mortality rate is even higher for black women. Um, so that for them, it's 55.3 deaths per 100,000 live births. And I just bring this up because America is considered a Christian nation. Um, and because of all of the controversy around abortion and how so many people in the church, you know, are just so opposed to abortion. Um, so it just is very ironic to me um, to read this verse where it says women are going to be saved through childbearing. Um, and then in Titus, so Titus 2, 3 to 5, Paul says, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. So reading all of these verses um, sort of sent me down uh, asserts to kind of understand what um, society was like at this time. Um, and I came the, across the work of Dr. Carol Myers, who's a professor of religious studies at Duke, and she wrote a book called Rediscovering Eve. And she sort of talks about how important women's economic roles were um, and how that economic importance gave them a certain amount of social and religious power. So basically, bread made up a large component of people's diets at this point in historical Palestine. Um, 
But so bread made up a huge proportion of people's diets and women had to grind this wheat into flour and make bread and all of this took time because there was no electricity. So all of this was like a very, like women were working together. It wasn't just like one woman in her, like at her family's house, like grinding the bread, um, grinding the wheat. It was groups of women coming together to try and A, you know, do this work faster um, and B, keep each other company as they were doing it. And so what Myers says is that women working together formed what we might call mutual aid societies today. Um, because they were spending so much time together, they knew what was going on. You know, everybody knew like if someone was having a problem and they were going to like go over there and help the family, um, or just support them and resolve conflicts and things like that. Um, and so like this, I'm, I'm not saying that there was no misogyny at this point, but what I am saying is that women did have in their own way, a substantial amount of power and influence on each other. So Paul might have been writing these letters, but then there was plenty of space for women to be engaging in their own subversive counter narratives. And when he's saying in Titus, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, I think he, you know, is sort of nodding to that, 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 power that women had within their own networks and he is trying to to influence what is happening there um how successful he was i don't know um but i just think that's like interesting context to have um as to like what women were doing and how they were communicating and and making their own culture and thinking through things for themselves yeah thank you katie that was great the um the way you brought it back to the um uh, maternal mortality rate uh, in America is really striking, um, and you're you're absolutely right. In a quote unquote Christian nation, um, uh, you know that this verse uh, has all kinds of interesting connotations with that, and um, unfortunately, um, that data that you quoted is not something that's focused on enough and by most. Um, conservative evangelical churches in America. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, women being saved through childbearing is so bizarre from any perspective of anything we know about historical Christianity. All the talk about um, the Bible, the whole entire gospel message is a message of salvation. How are we made right with God? And all the talk about free will and predestination and Calvinism and on and on and on. This completely flies in the face of all of that, and it's a totally different um, methodology for justification uh, that we see nowhere else in the Bible. And um, it's completely radical, and it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Women will be saved through childbearing. So everything that we know in the rest of the Bible about salvation and justification only applies to men. And women are made right with God simply through um, having children. And it, I think it's the most important thing we can say about this is that Paul didn't write this. The pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, um, are almost unanimously understood as forgeries or pseudopigrapha, whatever word you want to use, um, somebody writing in the name of Paul well after the life of Paul. It's written in a, there's a lot, we could go 
in detail about that, but it's a totally different writing style, using words that were not used at the time of Paul, um, speaking about the church in a higher form than it existed in the days of Paul. So for a lot of reasons, um, much more complicated than that, scholars have really come to the conclusion that we can't even accept this as genuine letters of Paul, but it is considered a genuine letter of Paul in all of the conservative churches around the world. So um, it has to be treated that way in our discussion, because this is exactly what the churches um, do with these verses. Yeah, I mean, so if you want to treat this as if it's Paul, which I think flies in the face of all historical research, um, the same research that allows us to... um, the same editors that put together the Bible that we have um, use the same exact techniques to uh, verify that the uh, pastoral epistles are uh, forgeries. And I'll use that word forgery because that's really what they are. But if you want to treat them as if they're uh, gospel or part of the, the canon or they were written by Paul, I guess they're part of the canon either way. But if they're, you want to treat them like they were written by Paul, then I really have to say, so which Paul are you using to interpret? Are you using the Paul from 1 Timothy where he has a clear view of women that is completely contradictory to the Paul in Galatians and completely contradictory to the Paul in Romans 16? who lists off a litany of um, female leaders in the church. And even in Corinthians, the problem isn't that women are, they're worshiping in the church. The problem is maybe that their heads aren't covered. So even in that passage, it's not like women are excluded from the worship worship that's going on um, or are not able to be, or only able to be saved through childbirth. This just seems so out of character for the theology of what we know Paul wrote, the undisputed letters of Paul, we shouldn't put weight on this obscure passage that makes no sense. Um, the other thing is, even in 1 Corinthians, um, I'm sure John can, uh, I think John has a, a quote about this too, but even p- part of the 1 Corinthians uh, 14.33, um, scholars think is a later addition to Paul, um, because it's out of step with what he's saying in the rest of the book. Yes, and I'm going to get into this, Ben, in the in part two of our discussion, and we're going to get into, like you said, this idea that Paul's original message about women had been corrupted, because what we've already seen is, in the earliest writings of Paul, some very um, pro-women verses, where clearly women had leadership roles, and they were obviously a, a major part of the church, to uh, the pastoral epistles, where you have women basically not even allowed to speak um, in the church. And yes, like the idea that um, that verse, which is very similar to what we find in the pastoral epistles about women, I don't allow a woman to teach. Um, Some scholars believe that that is a later interpolation. And again, we'll get into that in the next episode. Okay, what do you think? Uh, Maybe we should do another edition of Bible Says What? Yeah, let's do it. Bible Says What? All right, so in this uh, segment of Bible Says What, we're going to examine a passage from Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 25, verses 11 and 12. Hold on to your uh, hats, folks. If men get into a fight with one another 
and the wife of one intervenes to rescue her husband from the grip of his opponent by reaching out and seizing his genitals. You shall cut off her hand. Show no pity. I just cannot... There's... (laughs) I can't tell what is happening here because it's like, on the one hand, it's like, you wouldn't want to reward a wife for, like, standing up for her husband. (laughs) Right. Like, loyalty... And then on the other hand, I'm like, is her hand being cut off because she chose to seize his genitals? Like, would her hand be cut off if she had, like, cut off his hand? Like, is this is this just about the genitals? Is it, like, in her attempt to, like, protect her husband? Like, the this verse is seeing her as, like, cheating on him? Like, it's just very confusing and extremely specific. Yeah, I think the specificity is what's so fascinating to me because... First of all, was this something that was happening a lot in, uh, <laughs> and yeah. I mean, it's so, like you said, it's so specific. It's like, okay, it, it has to be the husband of one of the wives. It can't be a random woman or a random man. Um, and, and she seizes his genitals like that. Okay. What if she, uh, seized his neck or something? That's fine. I guess there's not, we're not even going to put any sort of a, uh, any sort of a punishment about that. But if she seizes the genitals, this is a big problem. It's like a man's testicles are just, they're almost like a holy item that no woman should ever reach out and touch. So I think you guys hit on a lot of the major questions (laughs) that go along with the first reading of this verse. I mean, it's pretty shocking. It doesn't seem to be very even-keeled. Um, it doesn't seem to be any form of justice, and it does seem incredibly specific. So interestingly, Hammurabi's code also had some sort of a, a prescription for like some a woman grabbing someone's testicles, but we'll not go down that that sidetrack or anything. So apparently, like maybe it was happening often enough in the ancient world that they needed to um, create some sort of a law. Um, another theory that I read was that it, it came from a specific court case, um, that they wanted to pass on because of whatever type of a lesson that it, it taught, which again is not abundantly clear upon first reading, but I have a couple questions, um, related to some of the, the Hebrew in the passage. So one of the things that's like really crazy about it is it doesn't really seem to be proportional. Um, and one of the things about Hebrew, uh, proportionality was the concept of lex talionis, which is basically like the punishment should not exceed the crime. So there's a question if Lex Talionis even applies to this passage, but let's just assume that the punishment should fit the crime, and this is an example of uh, Lex Talionis. And if it's proportional, how is the proportion um, if she grabs the genitals and has the hand cut off? The second question are what actually happens to the testicles or the genitals. Um, Are they injured? Um, If they are injured, that would make a difference in whether it's proportional. There's the um, significance of the verb call, which can mean to uh, cut, and uh, what is meant by cap, which can mean hand, 
or also can mean other parts of the body. Essentially, the really disputed parts are whether the uh, noun for hand really means hand or if it means some sort of uh, pelvic region of the wife who is um, grabbing the genitals. If it does, that would seem to, it would be the same part of the body um, which would make it seem more proportional. Um, and then the question is, what do you mean by cut? Is it cut shave or is it cut mutilate? You either have testicles being injured and the hand cut off because the hand did the injury, or you have testicles uninjured um, and humiliation happening, and then maybe the shaving of the woman's genitals to publicly shame her or humiliate her, or you have the testicles being injured and the woman being mutilated on her genitals. All of these interpretations, um, along with the original one that's in our Bible, are problematic, um, but they've been uh, the subject of a lot of debate. Yeah, so um, we don't have to give all the references, but there are scholars that have um, hypothesized all different uh, meanings of this, and you you just articulated them. So the main ones are um, shaving the woman as some sort of humiliation ritual, um, and the only people I've really seen um, supporting this idea are conservative Christians who are trying to get out of what seems like a horrific passage about mutilating women who um, touch the sacred testicles. Um, ben, I know you told me once before that the most problematic portion of this verse is the show them no pity or show them no mercy part of it, and I agree with that, but it's all pretty horrific uh, because I think it's clearly talking about um, cutting off a body part. Now, it, if it's not the hand, it's probably some, for, uh, some form of female circumcision um, or genital mutilation, which is um, horrific. I mean, the problem is inerrancy, again. Like, I just want to keep going back to it, because the passage in its context was written in probably 600 BCE, and it may go back, and it probably does go back to some sort of a legal case or some sort of a tradition that actually happened. But if you have to affirm it, because every word is literally true, then you run into a problem because this passage, no matter how you parse it out, I mean, the um, Paul Copin, who was the one uh, person who basically said it's humiliation for humiliation, was like, you know, it's not a great punishment, but it's not as bad as cutting off someone's hand. Well, I think it's still pretty bad. I mean, um, so if you're trying to make sense of the verse and you have to affirm the verse, there's no way to get around. It's terrible. And there's not even like a way to say, oh, well, these are extenuating circumstances because it says show her no mercy. Yeah, and I think it's funny that um, some Christians are like, see, it's not that bad. It's just uh, publicly shaming a woman by uh, shaving her genital region. Like, uh, <laughs> that's that's maybe not as horrific in, in one sense, but it's almost, in the creep factor, even more horrific. So, I don't know. And maybe I missed this. Maybe, Ben, you said this, but... What is the, the word for seizing? Like, in, in the original translation, do we get any more insight on that? Because if if we're, like, you know, seizing is not the same thing as cutting, so it doesn't seem equal if, if this is what they're talking about. Yeah, the assumption would be that if the genitals were crushed, it would be a serious offense because your progeny would be affected theoretically, and also you may be excluded from certain religious rights. So the theory would be 
your genitals are injured, therefore um, the woman's genitals need to be injured. But it's, it's not clear in the passage what happens to the testicles, really, if they're injured, if they're uninjured, which again means like you're reading it like, whoa, this is a really serious um, punishment for something that is like totally understandable. Like all she did was try to protect her husband. When they get in a fight, the verb like implies that he's actually losing the fight. So she's intervening because her husband's losing the fight in sort of a an underhanded way. And and I you know I've read a bunch of stuff about the the Hebrew words. It it's really not clear. There's a case for a lot of different um, interpretations of the words, and they're used in different ways in different contexts. So it's a problematic passage. It's just one of those things where you say Bible says what. So now it's time for our segment false witness. This is False Witness, the segment where we take a look at four verses, three of which are real, and one is false, planted mischievously by our producer, Diana. It's our job to analyze each verse and find the imposter. Once we have each made our choice, I will open the sealed envelope and reveal which verse is indeed the false witness. So I'm looking at these verses, uh, as is Katie and Ben, for the first time, and we have no idea which of these is the fake, and um, I guess I'll read through them quickly, and then we can kind of discuss it and come to our conclusion. So this is the first verse, number one. Then thus came every maiden unto the king. Whatsoever she desired was given her to go with her, out of the house of the woman unto the king's house. Okay. Number two. Many days and years shall ye be troubled, ye careless woman, for the vintage shall fail, the gathering shall not come. Verse three. A wicked woman is given as a portion to a wicked man, but a godly woman is given to him that feareth the Lord. Uh, Verse four. Do not trust a neighbor, put no confidence in a friend, even when the woman who lies in your embrace guard the words of your lips. So these, I think, are going to be difficult today. I don't know. I don't, off the top of my head, I don't have a prediction. What do you guys think? I think Diana's outdone herself this time. I'm kind of leaning towards the first one just because the word maiden um, doesn't feel super biblical, um, but it could be, so I don't know. (laughs) So I think they always say with multiple choice, right? You eliminate two. I think that three is real and four is real. So I think it's down to one or two. It's hard. See, both of them seem like the, the wordage is kind of awkward, but Mm -hmm. that might be... Uh, a little trickery on Diana's part. I'm going to go with my initial thought that two is the fake. Um, well, actually, my initial thought was one is the fake, but then I thought it almost seems too fake. So, so I'm going to go with two. Okay, so Ben is choosing two. Many days and years shall ye be troubled, ye careless woman, for the vintage shall fail and the gathering shall not come. I'm going to go with three. Because to me, it seems the most like straightforward and 
Um, I just have a feeling there's some kind of trick to this. So I'm going to guess number three, which says, A wicked woman is given as a portion to a wicked man, but a godly woman is given to him that feareth the Lord. Okay, I'm sticking with one. (laughs) Okay, so Ben chose number two. I chose number three. Katie chose number one. I will now proceed to open the wax-sealed envelope with the answer. Um, Ben, can you give me a drum roll? I can't. Okay. Um, I'm holding the answer in my hand. Okay. Let's start with Ben, who chose number two. Many days and years shall be troubled, ye careless woman, for the vintage shall fail, the gathering shall not come. This is Isaiah 32.10. And it is real. What the heck? What does that even mean? I think she didn't tend to the vineyard well. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. If she's waiting for the gathering, she's going to be disappointed. Okay, so then let me move on to the one I chose, which says a wicked woman is given as a portion to a wicked man, but a godly woman is given to him that feareth the Lord. This is from the Apocrypha. This is Ecclesiasticus 26.23, so it is not the Bible. Hmm. So this is the fake. Um, so Ecclesiasticus is more properly known as the wisdom of Sirach, or Sirach. Um, it is well known and widely read in New Testament times. It was not always viewed on par with other Old Testament books, but today it's part of the Apocrypha, and it is not um, canon. The one Katie chose is from Esther, Esther 2.13. Then thus came every maiden unto the king. Whatsoever she desired was given her to go with her out of the house of the woman unto the king's house. And then the last verse, which no one chose, was Micah 7.5. Do not trust a neighbor, etc., etc. So she fooled us. I got it, but everyone else got it wrong. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of suspicious that you're there with the envelope, but... Yeah, that's true. I have no way, I guess, to to prove that. Um, um, we can only really theorize the existence of an envelope based on the data that we have, but nobody's actually seen the original envelope. Um, spoken like a true skeptic, but um, but let let's just put it down on the record that I'm right and everyone else was wrong. This yeah, time, I thought yes. it was. <laughs> The problem is that I don't really differentiate as a historian from the apocryphal works because they can still tell us about what the Christian communities of that time were affirming and believing. Great job again, Diana. Yes, thank you, Diana. So I think that wraps it up for today, guys. Uh, Next time we will continue our discussion about the role of women in the Bible, and this time we'll focus more about um, how the church has traditionally dealt with these issues. Have a good night. The Skeptics Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash skepticsbibleproject and follow us on all social media platforms at skepticsproject. Got questions or comments? Email us at Skeptics Bible Project at gmail.com.